All right. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's always an honor to be here and uh, to teach God's word. So um, thank you for having me. I'm here with my wife, Hannah. She is always uh, faithful to come with me, to travel up here, and we're excited. So um, thanks for having us. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And um, Josiah is always great at assigning me a text when I come up and teach for you. He likes to continue his, uh, the series that they start. First Samuel is, is great. One time, I'm sure I've made this joke before, but he called me like two days um, in advance. Something came up. He asked me to come, and I'm like, sure, I can be there, expecting like, just teach whatever you want. Like if there's a message, you, he's like, can you teach Revelation chapter something? And I'm like, Sure. <laughs> We got like 24 hours notice. Let's do Revelation. So uh, this morning, 1 Samuel 4, excited about it. But we're in a series together called Prophets and Kings. And uh, making our way through the books of First and Second Samuel and into the book of Kings. And this series, we're learning that the Bible stories are not just a, a random collection of ancient stories. Um, but it's all moving somewhere. Um, it's revealing for us the need of a savior, and then ultimately leading us to Jesus. And sort of if you follow the, the narrative of scripture, it starts pretty broad with humanity, um, and then it just begins to narrow down uh, to uh, a person, Abraham, who's going to be the father of the nation of Israel. And then it sort of like gets wide again as it follows all of them in Egypt. And then we zoom in a little bit on, on Moses and the priesthood, but then it narrows down again um, to King David. And then David moves us towards ultimately the Savior, Jesus. And so um, the, the prophets and the kings really lead us into the need for Jesus and then ultimately how he is going to come into the world. And uh, so we're going to continue that story this morning, 1 Samuel 4. Um, and I've titled this morning's message, Is the Glory Gone? Is the Glory Gone? All right, we're going to begin in verse 2 of chapter 4. It says this. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined the battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us. When it comes uh, to among us, it may serve us from the hand of the enemies. Let's pause there. So Israel, they go into battle against the Philistines and they lose. Um, they're upset. They're confused. They're not sure why they've lost this battle. So they sort of assess the situation. Why did we lose this battle? What's going on? Uh, what's wrong with our life? Why did we lose? What's happening? And, and the people of Israel in this moment have some understanding of the promises of God um, because they understand that God has promised that they would be victorious in battle. Um, Joshua 23 verse 10 says uh, that one man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. So the Israelites in 1 Samuel 4 have some understanding of God fighting their battles because they're confused as to why they lost the battle. Like, wait a second. 
The promises of God says we're going to be victorious. That one of us can go against a thousand and we're going to win. So why is it that we just went to battle and we lost? And so they knew the promise and they're sort of confused as why it didn't work. And they come to a conclusion. They say, we're missing something. There's something not right and this is why we've lost this battle. Maybe we've experienced something similar. Maybe, maybe we felt like we are losing battles. Maybe we feel like we're, we're not walking in victorious Christian living, and we have some sort of idea of the promises of God, but they aren't matching our current situations. You ever felt like this? Like you read a Bible verse, and you're like, that's a promise from God. Why isn't it true for my life? Why am I not experiencing the faithfulness of God or the victory over this sin or, or something like that? And the promises of God are not matching the life that we're living. Maybe there's internal struggles we're facing or conflict at home with a spouse or conflict at work or feeling trapped in a sin. And we're saying, why am I losing these battles? The, the Bible says that I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, and yet I feel like I'm being defeated. Why am I losing these battles? And so the Israelites, they assess this situation. They go, why did we just lose? This isn't right. And they come up with an answer. Now, what they're missing is the presence of God and complete surrender to him. That's what they're missing. When they go out to battle, they are missing the presence of God and the power from God that comes when your life is surrendered to Jesus. In other words, they're missing God at the center of their life. In these chapters, what we're going to sort of see as we move through it is we see three wrong thoughts about God's presence and God's glory. We're going to see three wrong thoughts about God's presence and God's glory. Their views, their views on God's presence, though, what we're going to see as we move through here, are actually common ones that, can, that we can hold that can cause us to miss out on God's, God doing real transforming work in our lives. We're going to see three wrong views on God's presence. And although they're wrong, they're actually quite common. That, that we see God's presence as maybe one of these three things. And when we have a misunderstanding of who God is, and we have a misunderstanding of how God works, it can actually cause us to miss out on the work that God wants to do in our life. And so we're going to move through these things, and we're going to see three sort of views that they have, and I'll sort of give them to you, and then we'll break them down. They view God's presence, one, as a commodity, two, as completed, and third, as a curse. That's what we're going to talk about. God's presence either as a commodity, as completed, or as a curse. So the first one, let's talk about this, God's presence as a commodity. So let's continue in the story. So they lose the battle. They look, they go, hey, we're missing something. They go, I know what we're missing. We're missing the Ark of the Covenant. So verse 4 continues. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. 
So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods, this is the Philistines talking. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter And there fell of the Israelites 30,000 foot soldiers. Also, the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Okay, so you following so far? The Israelites go to battle. They lose. They go back and they assess. Like, why did we just lose this battle? What's going on? I thought we were going to be victorious. I know we're missing something. We're missing the ark of the covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the vessel that represented God's presence on earth. The Ark stayed in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. It would be moved by the priest when the tabernacle was moving. But apart from that, the Ark of the Covenant would remain in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle only to be seen by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Ark has gone to battle in the past um, with Moses and Joshua, but it was while the tabernacle was moving. So the Ark of the Covenant primarily stayed in one location. It stayed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. When the tabernacle moved, because the tabernacle was the, the, the temporary dwelling place for God, when the tabernacle would be taken down as they journeyed really from Egypt into the promised land, then the Ark of the Covenant would be moved as well. The Levites or the priests would carry the Ark of the Covenant. Usually it would lead them as they're journeying from one place to another. But for the most part, the Ark of the Covenant stayed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. You with me? This type of situation for, for uh, them to just bring the Ark of the, ba- or the Covenant into battle was pretty uncommon. We know this because even the Philistines say so. They said in verse 7, this has never happened before. We've never, this, is, this has never happened. Where all of a sudden, the Ark of the Covenant, God, they say, is in the camp with the Israelites. And it's going to come to battle with them. But here, in desperation... The people of God come up with an idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle. And then they lose. (laughs) A bunch of them die. And the Ark of the Covenant gets captured by the Philistines. So why? Why is this happening? Well, a couple things. One, they were, the Israelites, were worshiping the idea of God, not God. They're worshiping the idea of God. They're not worshiping God. They made the Ark of the Covenant an idol. Idolatry was a common practice in their day, and it was one of the things that constantly plagued the nation of Israel, where they would get caught up with the way that the surrounding nations would worship, and they would begin to worship idols as well. Because it's difficult to worship an invisible God. 
They, they wanted something they could see, that they could understand, that they could explain. And so they would reduce God down to an item or, or, or to a thing that they could see and touch and understand. In this case, they reduced God, the God that dwells uh, beyond, the God that is the creator of all things. They reduced God to a box. They said, do you know what we need? We need the box. We need the magic box. We need to go get it. We need to bring it to our camp. We need to shout really loudly at the box. And then that box will give us victory in battle. They were not worshiping the God who dwells between the cherubim. They are worshiping the box. And they're saying, oh, we need the box. And if we have the box, then we'll have victory. Now, although physical idolatry isn't common for us today, reducing God down to some idea or some religious act is. We aren't worshiping God. We're worshiping some idea of God. Because it's easier to do religious acts than to actually turn to Jesus. And we want God to be some sort of a genie rather than a savior. And we're saying, ooh, if we could bring the little thing into our life, if I just do this, if I just practice this, if I just act like this, then God's going to answer all my problems. God's going to solve all of my problems. I'll have victory again. If we just bring the the box here, then we'll find victory. And they reduce God down to an item and this cool thing that they can add to their life rather than who he is. And so they... They are worshiping the idea of God, not God in reality. The second reason why they bring the box and and why they lose the battle is because the world around them did it. They come up with the idea to bring their box into battle because the other idol worshipers would often bring their gods into battle. So imagine the Philistines, they bring their god into battle and then they win and they're like, that's what we're missing. We need to bring our God into battle. And what's our God? Well, it's that box that sits in the tabernacle. And so if we bring our box with us, then our box, we know that our box is bigger than their statue. And so we'll win the battle because we have our box and it's bigger than their statue. Are you with me? And so they have this idea that they come up with this idea because the surrounding nations, the surrounding world, that's how they worship their gods. God had given them instruction in his word for how they were to behave, how they're to go to battle, and how they're to worship him. And rather than looking to his word, they're looking out at the world around them for direction. And I don't have to go into too much detail to say that this is common for us in church today. We shape our worship, our decisions, our viewpoints, not based upon the word of God, but based upon the world around us. The call of the follower of Jesus is always to shape their view of the world through the lens of God's word, not the other way around. And yet in this moment, the Israelites, they're looking around and they're saying, oh, the Philistines do it like that. So maybe that's how we're supposed to worship God rather than going to God's word and say, how has God instructed us to worship him, to have relationship with him? How has God instructed us to view the world around us? And from the lens of God's word, we view the world, not the other way around. But when we reduce God to a commodity 
It's so easy to simply view him as some religious act or allow him to be shaped by the world that we live in. Listen, God is not a commodity, some little thing that we add to our life to help us get out of a jam or to help us feel a certain way. God is God, and he's supposed to be central in our life. And the Israelites, they lose in this battle because they reduce God to a commodity. They say, oh, he'll show up and he'll help us win the battle. Like that's all God's supposed to do is show up and help us win the battle. God is supposed to be central. He's supposed to be king of our life. We serve him. He does not serve us. All right, so the second thing we see is the viewpoint of God's presence. The first we, in this group, we see him as a commodity, something we just add to our life. The second thing we're going to talk about is somebody views God's presence or God's glory as completed. We're going to jump down to verse 19. In, the, in between verses 12 through 18, the news of uh, the Israelites losing the battle, the news of uh, uh, the two sons of Eli dying and the Ark of the Covenant being captured, it gets, that news gets brought to the, the high priest, Eli. And we're told that he hears the news of his son dying, the ark being captured, and he falls out of his chair and dies because he was old and heavy, is what the verse says. Um, so he hears the news, he's shocked, he falls out of his chair, he's, he's overweight, he's old, and he dies. Um, and then that's just kind of the end of him. We're like, all right, Eli's gone. And then uh, verse 19, we hear another person's view of the glory and the presence of God. Now, verse 19 says, Now his daughter-in-law, that's Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child, due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she didn't answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. This woman's view of God was that his presence and his glory had departed and had been completed. She was with child, and she names him Ichabod, which Kabod was the Hebrew for the word glory with this negative prefix. So literally, it means no glory, or the glory has departed. When she looks at the world and all that has happened, it's easy to, for, her, for us to understand why she thinks like this. She's looking out at the world, and she's saying, where's God's glory? It's over. It's done. It's departed. She's looking out. She's seeing social unrest. She's seeing crime is running rampant. Everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Idolatry has taken over. They just lost another battle to the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant has been cap taken captive. Her husband is dead, and the high priest is dead. The glory is gone. Where is the glory? Where, where is God? What is happening? And she's looking at the situation. She's looking at what she's feeling. She's looking at the world around her, and she's saying, God's glory, it, it, it's not here anymore. He worked at one point. He was doing miracles at one point. He was moving on behalf of his people. The Israelites truly were God's chosen people, but those days are behind us. Well, let me ask you a question. Is, 
is the glory gone? Is God's glory gone? Just if you have a Bible, if you would just put a finger in where we are. And uh, this is sort of what we've covered so far in the Bible. And she's saying God's glory is gone. She's saying that the story is over. It's completed. There's no more glory left in God. It's over. But I just wonder when we look at our Bible, is there glory left? Like, is God done? Is the story over? I mean, we haven't even scratched the surface yet of all that God's going to do, all of the power, all of the glory of God. And yet she's looking out at her world and saying, oh, it's over. The miracles that God has done, the way that God's worked, that was cool, but it's done. God's not going to do anything like that again. There is still so much glory left in the Bible. We will meet in just a few chapters King David who will establish the nation. Then Solomon will build the temple. Pretty soon we're going to meet Elijah and Elisha who were some of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. Then the writing prophets will show up and prophesy of a coming Messiah and kingdom. Then the Messiah will show up. He will do many signs and wonders. He will preach of the kingdom of God. And then he will die for the sins of all humanity, providing atonement for all that would believe. Then Messiah will rise from the dead, displaying the fullness of his power and glory. From there, a group of about 12 men will be commissioned to share the gospel. The Holy Spirit will pour out on about 100 people in an upper room, and the church will be birthed. And against all odds, the gospel message will spread to the whole world. Rome, which was the, the, the biggest empire the world had ever seen, will become a relic, and the gospel will transform the world from that point on. Has the glory left? Is the glory of God done? We haven't even gotten started yet. And yet her view of God is saying it's all in the rearview mirror. The best days are behind us. That God doesn't work the same way as he used to work. Can I encourage you this morning that God is still God? His glory is not in the past. The miracles that we read about, the ways that God works is not in the past. That God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can trust that what he started, he will complete. And we can have confidence in who he is. It is far too common to view God in light of our present circumstances. We think that our situation or the world that we live in or the feelings that we have are the measure of who God is and his glory. God's not done yet. He's faithful to complete what he started and he's not shaken or changed by what we see or experience. Let me encourage you. You can't view God by your current situation can't view the way that God works by what you're walking through right now. now. I'm not trying to minimize what you're walking through. I'm sure many of us have struggles and difficulty, and, and maybe this has been the most difficult season of our life, but that doesn't change God. God is still faithful. God is still in control. God still wants to move on your behalf. God still wants to show up and, and do exactly what he does. And so this person, as she looks around at the world and she says, well, God's glory is completed. It's done. It's, it's never going to be the same. If only she could see how wrong she was. 
If only she could see how, how God was going to move and do beyond what she could ask, think, or imagine. So we see God's presence or God's glory being viewed as a commodity, something that we just add to our life to help us get out of difficulty, or we view God as, as completed. He used to work, but he doesn't work in my life anymore. And then the third thing we see is people view God's presence as a curse. So we're moving into chapter 5 now. The story continues. Look at verse 1. It says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who came into Dagon's house uh, tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of, of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh toward us, and Dagon our God. Okay, so um, the Dagon was the, one of the Philistines' gods. And so they capture the ark of God. They capture the, car, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it back to the temple of their god, Dagon. And they set it up sort of in a, in a way that makes the, the Ark of God sort of bowing down, if you will, to their god. And they're, they're making a statement. They're saying, we defeated the god of the Israelites. We won the battle. Our god is more powerful than their god. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And then this part of the story is pretty funny. Because they bring the ark of God back, they think they've won, and then when they come back the next morning, Dagon had fallen over. And probably the first time, they're like, oh no, like this is, this is a coincidence, like this is weird, uh, don't tell anybody, oh no, our God fell down, let's help him back up. <laughs> so this time, they, 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 they pick it back up, they come back, and it happened again, right? And this time, it didn't just fall down, this time it broke. The head popped off, the arms fell off, and they, this time they're, oh no, our God fell down and broke, and he can't get back up. Like, they're like, ah, what's happening? So they respond by the, to this. They, they walk in. It's, it's kind of funny. It's pretty weird. They're probably shocked and disturbed. Oh no, our God has fallen over. What's happening? Um, and they respond by saying they need to get rid of the ark of God because the God of Israel is making our statue look bad. That's basically what they're doing, right? They're like, oh, no, this, he keeps falling over. That's not a good look for Dagon. We need to help Dagon, so we need to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant because this, this God is making our God look bad, and that's not a good look. <laughs> so we need to help him out. We need to make sure that, 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 that everybody knows that our Dagon is, is in control when we help him out, and so we need to make sure that everybody knows that he's in control when we help him out. So we got to get rid of our ark or got to get rid of the ark of the covenant. So they end up shipping it off and eventually it gets back to Israel. Now it's so striking to me because they recognized God as powerful. 
right? They see the God of Israel as powerful. They, they, they are even confronted with the fact that the God of Israel is more powerful than their God. So not only do they see that the God of Israel is powerful, but they also see how inferior their God is. The thing that we're worshiping can't even stay upright in the presence of their God. And they recognize that, that the God of Israel is more powerful than their God. But even though they see God as powerful, they don't think he's worth serving and surrendering to. They would rather continue to worship their inferior God than serve the obviously real God. Think about that. They're confronted with the reality of the God of Israel. He is more powerful. He is the God over every God. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the creator of all all things. And they're confronted with that reality. They're confronted with the truth of who God is. And they would rather continue to worship their inferior God than serve the obviously real God. And the reason I think is simple is because serving the real God requires life change. With their God, their statue God, they can just live however they want. He's got no power over them. He's a statue. They made him. They help him. If they change their worship, that means they have to change how they worship. They have to change how they live, how they behave. It means they actually have to follow God. The nice thing about idolatry is that you just make yourself God. Right? That's the beautiful thing about idolatry. As you just say, okay, this idea is God, and what does it say? How how does it need to be worshipped? What does it want me to do? Well, it wants me to do whatever I want to do. That God just wants me to live however I want to live. And so it's easy to worship idolatry because really you just make yourself God. And so we have Dagon here. He's our God. What does that mean? It means I get to do whatever I want. It means I get to live however I want, go however I want, worship however I want, just live my life because Dagon's God and he just wants me to be happy. And so when they're confronted with the true and living God, when they're confronted with with who God is, they they have to make a choice. Do we want to keep serving ourselves, or do we want to serve a God that is real? And that requires life change. Because the true and living God moves and speaks and directs and corrects. The, the, The true and living God requires surrender and service. And many people do the same thing. They view God as a curse. Rather than recognizing that God is God and turn to him and experience all the plans and all the goodness and all the freedom and all the hope that's found in him, we would rather stay away and stay the same. We don't have to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's easier to worship a dead idol than a living God. But the true and living God, the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ calls us to follow him and allow him to change and shape us into the people God desires for us to be. Many of us, we, we, we find ourselves confronted with the reality of who God is. And you kind of get to a crossroads whenever you're confronted with the gospel. 
Whenever, you're, whenever you hear the message of Jesus where he invites us into relationship with him, there's, there's a decision that has to be made. We're saying, am I going to lay down my life? Jesus would say, if anybody wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the crucified life. This is where we say, no longer am I in charge. No longer am I God. No longer am I king. But I am bowing myself down to King Jesus. And I'm saying, now I'm going to live in the way that he wants me to live. And that requires life change. That requires surrender. That requires transformation. And yet so often it is easy for us, even when we're confronted with the reality of God, we would rather choose an inferior God. We would rather choose a dead idol than serve a living God. When we're confronted with that, where do we find ourselves? Are we going to willingly say, okay, do you know what? I'm not not God. I'm not in charge. I don't have it all together. I don't have all the answers. I'm inferior. And so I'm going to bow my knee to King Jesus and allow him to lead and direct and correct when it needs to when necessary, and allow my life to be changed and transformed ultimately into the people, the person that God wants me to become. Worship team, you can come up here. I'm closing. But really the question this morning is, how do we view the presence of God? How do we view the presence of God? How do we view the reality of God? Is it a commodity (laughs) Something that we hope that we can just sprinkle into our life that will help our life get a little bit easier or we'll be a little bit happier or we'll find a little bit more victory over the struggles that we're facing. Just, it pairs well, God pairs well with the life that I'm living and so I'm just going to add him in as a little addition. Do we view God as, as an ancient or completed idea that he used to move but he doesn't move anymore? He used to work, but he's not going to work in my life. He works in other people's lives, but he doesn't do that for me. Are we going to view it as a curse? Meaning, I don't want to have to worship that. I don't want to have to follow him because that means I have to take up my cross. And the cross for us, it's kind of poetic. We get it, right? We've romanticized the cross. When Jesus made that statement, one, it was before he went to the cross. So him making that statement, people are like, what are you talking about? And two, in their time when he made that statement, the cross was not romantic or poetic at all. It was was a signal of death. It meant you were dying, and, and, and usually, other than Jesus, it was criminals being crucified on those things. And so Jesus making this statement, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, was radical language of saying it is it is a complete surrender to the will and ways of God. And sometimes we would rather not do that and rather worship and serve an inferior, inferior idea rather than the superior God. Or do we view him as central, as the one who's in control and will complete what he started in us and the one who's creating us into the people he wants us to become? Can I encourage you that God still wants to work in your life? And maybe going back to the beginning, you feel like you're, you're struggling. Maybe you feel like the, the battles you're facing, you, you, you're, you can't find victory. Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's, you feel like every day you wake up and you say, face the same battle and you lose again. And every day it's like, why can't I find victory? Maybe we need more of the reality of who God is in our life. Maybe, maybe we need to be challenged this morning with our view of how God works.
view of the presence and the power and the glory of God. How is he at work in our life? And allow him to be God in our life. Make him center in our life and trust that he's going to work, that he's going to complete what he started, and that he's creating us, he's shaping us into the people he wants us to become. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you love us and you see us. And Lord, for many of us, we are walking through difficult seasons, challenges, battles that we're facing, whether it's internally some sort of uh, uh, just that battle that we face with, with the flesh and the spirit. Maybe it's externally, it's, it's conflict, it's confrontation. Lord, would you help us to surrender to you, to trust you, and Lord, would you work in our life? Lord, your word tells us that your eyes run to and fro, searching for people that you may show yourself strong on their behalf. Lord, we know that you're, you don't need strong people. You also don't need weak people. You just need people that you would allow you to show yourself strong. So Lord, would you move in the lives and the hearts of your people? We love you, God. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together. We're going to worship God together.